On my mission to uncover the truth about Britain's slaving past, I never thought that one of the most compelling and illuminating stories would come via the lush valleys of Wales. I'm picking the tale of Welsh plains cloth, a fabric known as Negro cloth that was sold en masse to clothe enslaved people in the Americas and the Caribbean, has shone a light onto a massively overlooked part of British plantation society. How the lives and work of ordinary people in the country intersected with that of the slave economy. I want to know even more about the ins and outs of the Welsh plains trade. I'll find out what life was like for the people who ended up wearing the cloth. I'm Moya Lothian McLean. This is Human Resources. I've picked up the trail in my home county, Herefordshire. It borders Powys, which in a former life was called Montgomeryshire, and was where the Welsh plains cloth went from the backs of sheep to starting its journey to Britain's slave colonies. I'm speaking to Jenny Hodgman, a fabric specialist and textile student who's been studying Welsh plains cloth and even reproduced the fabric for an exhibition focusing on historic Herefordshire links to slavery. I want to know what this cloth felt like, how it was made, so I asked Jenny to bring it to life for me. We now have sheep breeds like Merino, where the wool is lovely and soft. I don't suppose it was. It was hand-spun and then it was hand-woven. There is some writing about the fact that some of the cloth went for trading in Africa, where it wasn't wanted as cloth. It was wanted as the yarn, so that it was unraveled. That doesn't make sense to me either, because once you fold it, you've kind of knitted it together. But never mind. If it was unravelable, <laughs> it wasn't a beautifully dense weave. So it's rough. Now we card wool, so you take the fleece from the sheep and it's industrially carded, so it's put through a combing process. What you're doing is lining up all the staples in the length of the yarn. It would have been hand carded because there wasn't industrial carders. They look like um, a square with a handle on and metal pegs. I don't know what they would have used instead. If they had spun it straight from the fleece, it would probably have bits of bracken and bits of grass and you know brambles or whatever. I don't know what breed. Welsh mountain sheep are one of the oldest registered breeds of sheep, but they're certainly not now bred for their wool. They're bred for their meat. There's some talk of it being a sheep breed like a, a Leicester, which has a much softer, much longer staple length. But that doesn't make any sense to me because to transport it from Leicester sheep across to Dalgethley and McCunclis to have it spun and woven doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. When it comes to historical trades, figures and stories, we're often told something as fact and left to believe it. So it was refreshing speaking with Jenny, as she clearly points out that a lot of what we know about Welsh Plains cloth doesn't actually make sense logistically. In Willie Morrill's part one, Marion Gwynne and I spoke about who would have been making this cloth. And it wasn't the merchants, so it had to be the local family. With Jenny, I wanted to dig a little deeper about the specific roles. Who would have performed most of this work and what was the process? Probably women and children. The Welsh spinning wheels are very big. 
So you take the fleece, it would have been spun. If you spin a length of yarn, you have to ply it because it doesn't have any strength to it. In the spinning process, you're adding strength to it, but you really should put it with another length to make it a stronger yarn. You sort of double it up, you ply it, which is when you get kind of four ply wools and things. If they hadn't done that, that doubles the length of each piece of yarn that you're using. But if they hadn't done that, I think the breakage rate, so once you've warped up your loom, you've got all of your warps, and you're thinking, and if you had eight warps per inch and you're making yard-wide cloth, that's a lot of yarn. But if you are then weaving it and you put it under too much strain, the warps will break. And if you break your warps, that's it, it's gone. So I think the children and women as part of a sort of farmer's wives industry, which is where I get stuck because I don't know where they got the time to make this level of cloth. There's obviously evidence of the fulling mills, but what there isn't evidence of is where the cloth was woven. So it's most likely that women and children were performing this intricate, time-consuming work of weaving. But as Jenny points out, there isn't actually any evidence of this, or who was doing the weaving at all. But there must be some speculation about what was going on. I am told, talking to Chris Evans and people about it, that it was farmers' wives. But... I don't know. They did quite a lot of work trying to talk to communities. And the community around Dargathli and Wakantlith was really quite difficult to talk to. They found a problem with the fact that they didn't speak Welsh. I really would love to go back and have another go and see. Moya, I don't know, because the population doesn't seem to have been big enough to full cloth you need a lot of running water. So was it being woven in other places, transported to the fulling mills, and then from there back out to Shrewsbury? So was it a whole Wales-wide industry? But then where did the wool come from? It's becoming clear the more you look into the process of weaving and fulling the cloth, the more questions you'll begin to ask. And unfortunately for the moment, those questions still appear to be unanswered. So what do we know, if we go back to the finished cloth, about how it would have fared in the sort of very hot, punishing conditions of Caribbean colonies? What would it have been like wearing this as an enslaved person? Wool breeds, so there would be some sense of it would work within the environment. It's quite warm at night if nights are colder, and it would breathe, so the sense that you would sweat through it. But it's a natural material. I don't know why there isn't sort of moth attack. I don't know why on its shipments it wasn't decimated by moth. I think it probably would have rotted. I think if you were really hot and sweaty and if it's your one item of clothing, you know, you've got one thing to wear and your hand sewing it, you're making it yourself. I mean, if it was five yards of cloth per enslaved person per year, I don't think it would have lasted you a year. 
I just don't see how it would have stood up to that. Speaking with Jenny, so many questions have been raised about Welsh Plains cloth and its creation and ability to last. I can't say that I'm surprised, as this area of Wales and its links to the slave trade have only just over the last few years started to be interrogated. And from this conversation, we can already tell the lid is only just being lifted. In Woolly Morals Part 1, we learned that the use of Welsh plains cloth was dramatically reduced once cotton entered the picture. We only touched on this with Marion, so I wondered whether Jenny had any more information about what happened to the Welsh communities who'd been producing the wool cloth once cotton replaced it. The whole of the filling mills and now just, you can trace them out on the ground. I think it just went. You know, cotton came, they didn't need Welsh plains anymore. And an industry that they'd had for 150 odd years just went. Jenny has studied this cloth, tracked its journeys and replicated it as close as she could for her final project. I wondered on that level of, you've suddenly got a market for something that there wasn't a market for before. You've got more food to put on the table. Your children are surviving that maybe otherwise wouldn't have survived. That would all feel good. You know, we turn a blind eye to things now. Would it be that just that sense of, thank God, I've got a market for something I can make and I can bring more money in and I can protect my family? There's no sign, as far as I know, in any of the records of dissent of people saying, well, no, I'm not making it. How much was understood? How much was understood about where it was going and what it was actually going to be used for? I think it's really hard. I love material and I love process. I really like using something like wool because I like it as a material. I like the ethics of it. I like the fact that it's quite a natural fibre. I like process, so I like spinning, and I like the weaving, and I really appreciate the time that went into that. But I have the time, and I'm doing it for a kind of pleasure and a slight sort of reenactment thing. I'm not doing it because I've got to produce... 40 odd yards of this it must have been bloody hard work and how much you knew about where it was going and whether that became part of what you're thinking I don't know you may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop wondered what it is why aren't you listening well I'm its host created it been doing it for seven years I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Our willingness to look the other way seems to be a gift and curse of humanity. While we can empathise with something we see directly, often if it is beyond our view, if it impacts someone else, not as individually, 
if it happened in the past. We create a narrative that makes us feel better about things, even ignoring the issues bubbling completely. And working through a project and recreating this process, in a way stepping into the shoes of the Welsh workers during this time, I wondered how all this felt for Jenny directly. For me, doing it and producing the work that I produced, I found it was a very emotional project. I think there was a level of ignorance that I'm really annoyed at myself for having in that sense of, you know, about the triangle of trade. And, but suddenly this brought it home to my doorstep that I was in the Weir Gardens and you suddenly see where that money came from and what was going on. You start looking at Tate and Lyle, at the Tate. Fundamentally, it is the foundation of my country, of where I was born and bred. That I have to accept. And I can't go, oh, the us and the them. No, sorry. Enslaved Africans, fundamentally, making massive amounts of money in sugar. I mean, they were talking about 120,000 sugar refining factories in the UK in the 1700s, which I just find astonishing. It was massive and it has built the foundation of our country and there is no getting away with it. And with things like National Trust now looking at their properties and it's everywhere. We need to stop kidding ourselves. It's everywhere. Jenny's right, and this is the basis of our show. Britain's involvement in the enslavement of Africans touches every part of our nation. The names Jenny just mentioned, Tate and Lyle, the Weir Gardens, the Tate, names you've heard throughout the series so far, iconic British landmarks, people and institutions, and they all have connections to slavery. It's everywhere. Jenny's deep knowledge of fabric had brought Welsh planes to life for me. But I wanted to know more about the experience for those at the other end of the trade, the enslaved people who ended up wearing the cloth. What can this fabric tell us about the way they lived their lives? To shed some light on the matter is Dr Steve Buckridge, a professor of African and Caribbean history and an expert on the slave dress. I asked him what happened to Welsh planes cloth once it reached its destination. It's important to realise that there were several textiles that were called Negro cloth. All right, now you talk about Welsh plains. In the Caribbean context, and I'm going to focus on the British Caribbean, in particular the island of Jamaica, Welsh plains was not prevalent in Jamaica. You find Welsh plains more prevalent in the US South. But the textile that you find that was more prevalent is Osnaburg. And Osnaburg was also called Negro cloth. And you also had Osnaburg used in the uh, southern states of the U.S. So one of the first things to keep in mind is that Negro cloth, when it was brought into the Caribbean, 
was used to clothe slaves and it served many, many purposes. But cloth was very valuable to slaves, all right? It was not something that everyone could afford or not something that everyone had easy access to. So when we talk about the role of cloth, all right, first of all, cloth, you know, textile, Negro cloth was used to protect the body, obviously, for wearing, all right, to protect the body from the elements. But it was also used to adorn the body. The cloth was used to make clothing, yes. Now, in some cases, what we find happening is that during the early stages of slavery in the British Caribbean, enslavers did import ready-made clothing, which they would distribute to slaves. But after a while, as the slave populations got so, so large, it became increasingly difficult to give ready-made clothing. And so large quantities of textiles were imported. And not just, you know, Welsh plains and Osnaburg, but also Indian cottons. And so these textiles would then be distributed to the slaves. And so in some cases, we had the enslaver, or we'd say the mistress of the plantation, who would then help to sew these, you know, sew the textiles into uh, outfits for the slaves to wear. But you also had very talented slaves, seamstresses, dressmakers, tailors, who also made clothing for members of the slave community. But the other thing, too, that's really crucial here is that apart from adorning the body, protecting the body, Dress among slaves reflected class, it reflected status, it reflected identity. Cloth was so valuable, it was traded within the slave community. Cloth was used to solidify relationships. Cloth was traded and exchanged for favors. And cloth was used to make outfits for deception and disguise. So those are some of the basic functions when we think about the role of Negro cloth and how textiles were used. So why was this cloth mostly used in Jamaica? This particular textile, if we're talking about Osnabrück, came from Osnabrück, Germany, and it was imported because it was cheap, cheap for the planters to import, the same way that Britain had its empire in India, so they could afford to bring in large numbers of cheap Indian cottons as well, Madras cloth. So we do see other forms of textiles because... We have this global trade in textiles, but in the Caribbean region itself, I mean, Osnaburg was the one. Now, one of the interesting things here is when you look at some of the records from the people like Edward Long or even Sir Hans Sloan, when the textiles arrived, all right, yes, they gave out some ready-made clothes, but over time, the bulk of it would be textiles. And then what we do know is that men, slave men, received more textiles and more clothing than slave women, certainly in the Jamaican context. Because the belief was that women were not as good laborers as men, even though they were working side by side. So men were rewarded by getting more textiles. And the amount of textiles that were distributed was basically enough to make two suits per year. And that created a problem because if you're working in the fields, then your outfits are going to get worn after a while. And so as a consequence, what we see, especially in Jamaica, is that slave women ended up having a greater need for clothing than slave men because of this imbalance in the distribution of textiles. What kind of significance did this cloth take on within slave communities? Did it become more than it had initially been, a.k.a. a uniform of bondage? Slavery denied 
African people their basic rights as human beings. And part of the process, all right, that the enslavers tried to do was to dehumanize them, to show that, hey, you know, you're inferior, you're lesser than human beings. Slavery was harsh, it was brutal, but it's important that we not forget the humanity of the slave and that slaves did the best they could to survive under the circumstances, all right? And so they made fashion. They took the textiles that they had and they said, you know what? I'm not going to take this boring textile, this plain white textile. I'm going to dress it up and make it look good so I can feel good. Because the argument is that, you know what? Things are tough. The enslaver might be whipping me and treating me badly. I might be brutalized. By the end of the day, I want to feel good, all right? And so textiles was part of this process of making the individual feel the same way that we do today. And so when we talk about textiles, you know, it's important, going back to what I said earlier, textile was a very valuable commodity within the slave community. The number one item that was taken by runaway slaves was clothing, because it wasn't easily accessible. Not everybody could afford clothing to create a space for themselves to breathe or to create a space for themselves within this very oppressive society. How did they do that? Slave women would take the boring fabrics they received and they would go into the forest and they would search for dyes. And they would take those dyes and they would dye these boring fabrics and create some fabulous things. And we have records of that. In fact, in Jamaica, we now know that a vibrant industry in dyeing fabrics developed, something which many people don't talk about. We need to acknowledge that. And so by doing that, they said, look, you know what? I'm going to make myself look good and feel good. We also cannot forget that we had carnivals uh, in the Caribbean. Slave had days off, certain holidays when they could celebrate, you know, crop over fests and so on. And they would make costumes. Now, in some cases, some costumes, for example, in Jamaica, we had Junkanoo. All right. I'm so many people familiar with Junkanoo. And in the Caribbean context, in some cases, these costumes were sponsored by the enslavers or by planters. They got involved because it was a competition and so on. But you also had slaves, slave women and slave men and free people of color who were also engaged in this process of creating these textiles. So people tried to cope. And it was a way to receive a little bit of power within, no matter how fleeting it was. But it was a way to experience a little bit of space to enjoy oneself to to be able to breathe a little bit huh? within this larger confine of the brutality of slavery as enslaved women were given less cloth for clothing were they able to find other sources they looked to the environment to find materials to make clothing and so we have i mentioned dyes before but you also had a vibrant bark cloth industry that developed in jamaica they would cut the bark of a tree called the lagetto tree and they would soak it in water, pull out the fibers and the end result looked exactly like lace. This is in my book titled African Bark Claw. And sadly, this is not known by many people. And so this just blew the minds of scientists. Sir Hans Sloan, when he came to Jamaica, he heard about lace bark and he freaked out because he couldn't imagine that there was a plant that the fibers look like lace. And Kew Gardens in London has um, samples of this. But the fact is that 
women survive, these African women. And what's interesting about the lace is that the enslavers felt that Black women could never be feminine, that Black women were, you know, they could never be on the same level as white women, all right? And lace represented elegance, femininity, and prestige, and class. And here you have these Jamaican Black women who are making these exquisite outfits from natural lace, and they're saying, look, hey, I can be as refined and as beautiful and as elegant as any white woman can. Steve talking about lace bark and how the women use it to feel elegant and also show off their beauty. We can definitely see parallels of that today in Jamaican cultures, the diaspora, Caribbean cultures and even African cultures. It's like, you can oppress me, but look, I will show up and I will show you up with what I wear. Is this a tradition that's been passed down? Yeah, I think so. And we have a saying in Jamaica, you know, Jamaicans love to dress up and we love lace, all right? And one of the arguments I make in my work, in my books, is that, you know, some of this goes back to slave, but also back to our early ancestors, you know, back to the African continent, uh, about how we dress and the importance of dress and how we carry ourselves and how we use clothing to make a statement. You know, there's a long history of clothing being worn to make a statement. And we see this in other cultures too. It's also important to acknowledge, right? Because sometimes this gets overlooked quite a bit. We need to acknowledge that the continent of Africa has produced some of the most beautiful textiles on this planet. They brought this knowledge with them. You know, they brought the things that they remember and what they used to do. You know, we can talk about in Ghana with Kentic cloth and Adinkra cloth and, and Bogolan Fini from Mali and all these other textiles. So there is a long and vibrant history in terms of appreciating cloth and textile weaving and making beautiful rhythmic patterns in textiles that go all the way back to Africa. Were there any particular styles of clothing the enslaved women created or developed for practicality? What's interesting, and I want to share this with you, I'm sorry, this is not visual where I could show you pictures of this, but there is a style that developed among slave women who worked in the fields, and we call it the pull skirt. And what they would do is that the women would wear these long skirts and then they would tie a cord around outside the skirt, just above the knees or up on the thigh. And so what happens is that, this is why I call it the pull skirt, because when they're working in the fields, they could pull up the skirt over the cord to make it easy for them to move while they're working. But it also enabled them so they could move faster if they're crossing rivers, they could pull up their skirts so their skirt doesn't get wet. And if you look at pictures, old pictures, and this even continued after slavery, you will see many rural women will wear their long dresses like this. And you see this bulge around their hips. That's because they would have this tie, this cord, or a belt or a rope tied so that they could pull up their skirt. But the other thing too is that when a woman was trying to flee enslavement or she was running away, this allowed her to move fast because you have to think about the fashion. This is a time where people wore long skirts, right? Women wore long skirts. And if you're running away and you're running through the woods, you have to be able to move fast. And so you pull up the skirt so you can flee quickly or faster and hopefully evade capture. A lot of the time, clothing is seen as an aesthetic luxury. Fashion is something that's just surface level. But we know that being able to express yourself is a key factor in helping you find your identity or feel more at ease. 
And as Steve points out, this way of thinking isn't all that modern. Fashion can have dark, practical uses, like helping you switch to a less restrictive outfit in order to move faster. What can this knowledge about how enslaved people use textiles teach us about our relationship to clothing today? The fact that you as a slave, if we were to go back in time and to think that just to cover our bodies, to be able to present ourselves in public, we have to rely on somebody else to give us clothes to wear. And even in those contexts during the days of slavery, even though a slave might have purchased a garment on their own. You know, you know, some women will sell their vegetables and the money they say that they could purchase it. At the end of the day, whatever they owned, well, technically they didn't own anything because they were property. Slaves were viewed as property. And whatever they had also belonged to their owners. And so there's stories about the planter or the enslaver would be mad and they would come into the slave cottage and they would rip up their slaves' clothes, or they would take their slaves' clothes away as punishment. Or there are stories about elderly slaves when they get to a certain point and they can't work, how some of the enslavers didn't want to provide them with clothing. Now, you should know here that you had laws, all right, that clothing was regulated, right, by local vestries, but we didn't have any sumptuary laws that said what you could wear from what you couldn't wear. It varied from place to place. But in Jamaica, there were no sumptuary laws. But however, enslavers were required by law to clothe their slaves, and they could be fine. We take clothing for granted. Some people do. And it's hard to fathom, I think, for some folks, how valuable textiles were to enslaved people. From the wool spinners of Wales to enslaved women handcrafting lace from tree bark, I never imagined that following the threads of Welsh plains cloth would lead me down the path it has, but it's opened up a whole new way to think about Britain's slaving past. I feel like the story has never been closer, in all its shades. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz with J-Hope on the strings, vocal pieces by James Collins and Caleb Keneally, flute and steel pan by Sean Herbert.